Hey guys, John Arshada here. This week I'm releasing the episode a little bit early because I'll be traveling over the weekend, so I won't have a Friday release. But I do urge you to listen to the episode because there's a lot of good information, some information I wish I would have known when I was applying for residency. Check out this new book. I think it'll really help you in your journey. What does it take to get into the residency of your dreams when it seems like all the odds are stacked against you? My name is John Arshadi, and I want to welcome you to the Road to Residency podcast. This is the show where we break down inspiring personal journeys of passionate physicians who had the courage and the commitment to take purposeful action to achieve their goals and serve their communities. Hey champions, welcome back to another episode of the Road to Residency podcast. I'm John Arshadi, and today I'm here with Brenda Thompson. Brenda has over 10 years of GME experience and has held various roles, including an accreditation specialist, GME manager, wellness educator, and residency coordinator. Today, she focuses mainly on educating the medical community on ways to promote wellness, prevent burnout, and maintain a healthy state of well-being. She recently wrote a book encompassing everything about graduate medical education, which is very helpful for program faculty, administrators, and residents alike, as well as medical students. Hi, Brenda. Welcome to the show, and it's great to have you. Hi. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. So, Brenda, I'm really excited about this book, and I want to learn more. But first, a lot of us who are going into residency, applying to residency, we're thinking about impressing the program directors, coordinators. We don't really realize that there's this whole other side that we don't see until we actually get to residency. So tell us a little bit about your background and what exactly is ACGME and what do they do? So my background has been in the graduate medical education community for a decade now, and I've held various roles, but mostly I've worked in the GME office as an institutional coordinator. So I would be doing like mock site visits for the residency and fellowship programs making sure that they adhere to the requirements and standards set forth by ACGME because we would want to correct them before ACGME comes down, does a site visit, and then gives a citation. So ACGME, they're the Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education. And every residency program and some fellowships have to be accredited through ACGME. So like I said, some fellowships get accredited through ACGME, but some don't. But they're there to make sure that, you know, a good sound education is being given to the residents and fellows. So they uh, oversee, they oversee the programs and they oversee the sponsoring institution, um, which I kind of break down just to simplify it as the GME office. Right. Awesome. And so for medical students and graduates right now who are looking to get into residency, what are some of the things that they should be thinking about and what are some of the takeaways that they can get from your book? So for right now, if they're still medical students and they're, they have yet to go through the matching season, they're going to do that next matching season, then definitely there's a chapter for them. It's actually chapter nine where it says transition to residency. And for that, I talk about the back end process of the recruitment. So they, of course, are coming as a prospective candidate. They're not aware of how the whole ARIS filter process works. I mean, we get hundreds upon hundreds of applicants. And of course, we can't read them all. So we have abilities to filter out applicants that might not make the minimum qualifications per program. And what's interesting is, you know, I've had programs that say, oh, just tell the candidates that that we read everyone's application. Well, that's not true. There's just no way that we can. I mean, especially for internal medicine programs where 
you know, you could have a hundred plus people in a program. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of incomings that you're going to be interviewing for. So you must have like a good 20 spot minimum to open. So think about how many applications that program was getting. I have a history in surgery and in psych. And of course, surgery is hugely popular. So I was reading, gosh, 500 applications. I mean, you just can't do that. So we would filter the minimum on ARIS and that would weed out the applicants. So I would never even see their application. Mm-hmm. So I really think that's important. Like when when there are minimums on a program's website, you should definitely trust that that's what they're going to be looking at. It's not a situation of where people say, oh, if you feel like you're overqualified, apply for the job anyways. No, this is the minimum. This is what they're looking at. You will get filtered out. So if you have up to how many places that you can send a resume to, then you might want to just save that and send (laughs) send it to a program that, you know, you do meet the minimum qualifications on. But then I also talked about, you know, the mindset, the psychology behind why a program director needs to match. Why are they going to rank certain candidates higher versus lower. So that's a good insight. And then there's also questions that you, the candidate will be asked. And then there's questions that you, the candidate should be asking the people who are interviewing you. You should always ask each person at least one question. Right. So it's very, um, it's very well-rounded in the sense of from the beginnings to, to the endings. Like this is how you write a personal statement. This is what the program is looking for in your personal statement. This is how they're going to probably rank candidates. For example, location, they're always looking at location. What tie does the candidate have to that location? Hmm. If you can't see it on the address of where they live or their college, med school, then it should be somewhere in the personal statement. If not, well, then I might, you know, put you in pile two while I keep looking for the candidates to put in pile one. Obviously, pile one is going to be the first round of individuals that we interview. Yeah, excellent. So that sounds like an excellent resource to have. Let's back up a little bit to the filters. I noticed you said that you filtered out a lot of students. What can students do to make sure that they bypass those filters or they don't get filtered out? So I always tell um, prospective candidates, if you don't have all of the mandatory paperwork, like the letters of recommendation, don't yet apply to that program until you have it. Let me give you an example. So as a program coordinator, you know, we would be like the first people who would weed out those applicants. So I'm not going to send non-qualifying applicants to my program director to finalize and then invite to an interview. I'm going to look through that first and weed them out. So if I have someone that has two LORs and not three, I'm not even touching his application or her application. I'm moving on. However, you might get some coordinator that's new and a program coordinator's life expectancy on the job is 2.5 years. And the average that it Mm -hmm. takes for that position to have learned everything is three years. So there's a heavy turnover for program administrators. They're leaving in 2.5, but it's supposed to take them three years to learn. Why do you think that is? Um, There's a lot of reasons. Number one, like a lot of the training um, has to come out of the employee's paid pocket. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, any job that you go to, to where you, you don't have paid training, that's just unjustifiable to some people. Right. So what happens then is that you might get a coordinator that's new that doesn't realize that you can bring those applicants back into the pool. But mm-hmm. some people will say, oh, they're in my, they're, they've been in my filtered. I've already 
I've already received them. So if you send it, let's just say September 1st, you send your application September 1st to my program, but you did not include the three letters of recommendation. I'm not going to, I'll get your application and it will tell me when it, when it has come, what date. So let's say September 1st, but it doesn't have everything to meet the minimum. So it's recognizing the application came September 1st, but then it's moving it off to my filter. So I'm not bothered with it. Now, if I'm new and I didn't know how Eris works and I'm just kind of learning as I'm going, maybe next month, I'm going to go ahead and see who's new, the new applicants since September 1st. Mm -hmm. And then I can see who's good. Who do I need to filter out from that? Now, if I'm not, if I'm not experienced in Eris, I'm just going to accept who's new from October 1st. So I'm not bringing back the old applicant pool, even though you might have updated that last LOR that was man- mandatory. Right. So that's why I say don't even chance it yeah. until you have everything. So once it hits the program, then they'll go ahead and look at all the new applicants and make sure since you met the minimum now that your application is going to be looked at. So that's the risk that you can take. Does it happen? Yes. Does it happen a lot? No, mm-hmm. but it still happens. And if you can't get everything uploaded when it needs to be, and things are going to become straggling in, except for the Dean's letter, the Dean's letter always comes straggling in. Mm-hmm. I never do a filter on the Dean's letter, but right. I always do it on the LORs. Right. And does the same go for the US Omni scores as well or no? No, um, because that's that was tricky this past year. Mm-hmm. They just kind of uploaded almost at random. Yeah. So, but I do, the thing is with the test scores that have, um, you know, now been changed for this upcoming academic year, I used to filter them out. There was always a minimum that my programs would ask for. Mm -hmm. And so I know that's going to be a bit different upcoming. So we'll see how that's running. It could be like, if you failed on your first attempt, then filter out. Or it could be if you failed in the first and second attempt, filter out. Right. So do the research on the programs before you just blanket apply to everywhere, because if there are programs that have a a minimum requirement of score or attempts or years of graduation, if you don't meet those requirements, you are going to get filtered out and your application is not even going to get looked at. So there's no point in spending 25, 30 bucks, whatever it is now on applying to those programs. Right. So if that program says you need to have honors, in this rotation, so whatever it may be, surgery rotation, a psych rotation, and you didn't, and you got to be, mm-hmm. I mean, that's up to you if you want to try your luck, but maybe try your luck last. <laughs> so right. you get the program that you have a higher chance of getting into, make sure that they are well attended to and you submit for those mm-hmm. and then come back to your maybe pile. That should be in your maybe pile. If you don't meet the minimum, put that in your maybe pile. Yeah, for sure. Apart from that, what are some of the other topics or chapters that medical students should specifically focus on in in your book? So the book is called Graduate Medical Education, Rethink, Reclaim, Redesign, Recreate, a memoir and a call to action. And it should be read in its entirety, but specifically for medical students, definitely you want to go to transition into residency because that will talk about the back end of the whole recruitment process. But then I would say read it from its entirety because the very first question is going to be a question at the beginning of the chapter that you're going to need to ask yourself. And it's who's in my GME community. So let's say you get ahead, you, you match, you're into a program 
and now you're starting like the first week. You're going to have an incoming orientation, um, but it really depends, you know, how in-depth they teach you or what they teach you during that. So you want to know who's in my GME community. You might just think, oh, it's the people in my program. So it's going to be my program director, the attendings, other residents, and, you know, the program administrator. But that's not it. That's not all who's really going to be watching and evaluating you. So you have to be mindful of when you go out into the halls of medicine, wherever it may be, whether you're just, you know, doing a, a journal club or whether you're on a rotation. There are other people who are giving feedback about you, about your performance. They're essentially doing what's called a SWOT analysis, and it's S-W-O-T. And that means they're looking at your strengths. They're looking at your weaknesses. They're looking at other areas of opportunities for you, things that maybe uh, you'd be good at, you can improve on, et cetera. And then they're looking at threats. Mm -hmm. So what is blocking you or what is going to be a concern for patient safety? That's how you're being, that's how you're always going to be evaluated. But don't be surprised when the evaluations come from other people and from other means that are not connected to the residency database. So whether it's new innovations or MedHub, it can become, you know, personal one-on-one in a group setting by a director, um, you know, by anybody, by your program administration, by a nurse, by a case manager. So be aware of that and ask yourself, okay, who's in my GME community? Because you have to expand that because it's going to be other people and you want to make sure you have the best professional front in front of all, not just who you think is going to be evaluating you because you don't necessarily know who's going to be evaluating you. Maybe the nursing director is not working with you one-on-one, but that nursing director is getting the feedback from all the nurses that have worked with you and bringing it to a meeting And actually, the meeting is called Graduate Medical Education Committee Meeting. A lot of these meetings have many directors throughout the hospital. A nursing director would be one of them. And it's like a monthly meeting. And they say, okay, you know, give us the feedback of what it was like working with the residents and fellows this past month. And so that director says, okay, let me get the feedback from my nursing staff. Okay, this is what they said. And now it's being presented in front of everybody at this meeting. And this meeting is with program directors. It's with the CMO. It's with the CEO of the hospital. It's with other program directors from other hospital areas. You know, we, when I was in part of that meeting, we had like four other hospital program directors come to that meeting because they were affiliates. So your reputation as a doctor is being built right from the get-go, right when you join a residency program. It's not just about your, your own hospital walls. It's outside as well. So your reputation can get passed on through somebody else. And then, you know, program director takes it with them and they go to their, their actual home hospital. And then one day you're rotating at that hospital. And now they have an idea about you, about your work abilities. So make sure it's successful from the get-go, make sure it's a positive one from the get-go. So that's what I mean by expand your awareness of who's in your GME community. It's not just the people in your program. And always be professional, always have a professional demeanor about you because you don't know who's watching you to evaluate you to give it back to your program director to treat every instance as if you're being evaluated yeah that's super important and you know not only expand your awareness about who's who might be watching you but also expand your awareness about yourself and you know what are you doing what are some areas that you can improve so that you are more professional you are more personable yeah and i have and i have in chapter five it talks of the well-being And I talk about, you know, emotional, mental, spiritual, and physical. 
So, for example, ACG and me, their crediting body, they do really good about pushing the whole sleep narrative. And I think that's well and great, but we have to do something in terms of ourselves. So, like you said, have situational awareness. You have to know your temperament. You have to know your, you know, maturity, emotional-wise, mental-wise, spiritual-wise. And if you're not that disciplined yet, and I don't expect many to be because, you know, they're just getting volunteer experience and they're spending their lives in, in education, but they don't go through a lot of jobs. Mm-hmm. So they're not working out any type of conflict resolution. So now they're being put into this residency program. They're going to be working with many, many different people in many different departments. And now they're going to be going through their first learning experiences for many different things. So it's going to take trial and error. But the one thing I would love to get across to future doctors is have a means to outpour your daily stressors. So in chapter five, I talk about that. You're gonna, you know, be pushed to the limit many times. We teach you about how to build resilience. And I think that's great, but you're gonna explode if you don't work out all of the burdens that you've carried on. So it's day after day, patient after patient after patient, you're taking on their trauma. You're taking on the challenges of just learning how to be a doctor. You're taking on any conflict that you're seeing And there's going to be a lot because you've got the duality of patient, Mm -hmm. but then program staff, right? The program director, the attending. So it's going to be happening in all ways and that you might not be aware of. So have a healthy way to get that outpouring out of your body, whether it's, you know, a good kickboxing class. Sometimes people like to meditate or sometimes people like to journal. There's always traditional therapy. Make sure you help your you know, healthy as much as you can. And if you think that you can just be, you know, boggled down by all of this, this newness and all of these traumas and and challenges dealing with patient care, it's not possible. You have to find a healthy means to get a healthy outlet for everything that you've been, you've been carrying. Yeah. And from what I understand, most programs do offer some kind of counseling or therapy for the residents. Am I right? No. So what happened is that in recent years, ACGME has said that there has to be some form of counseling available. Mm-hmm. So family medicine, I believe, is the only program that has an actual counselor of some sort within the department. But for everyone else, ACGME just stipulates, you know, you have to offer some form of counseling. Well, most hospitals, if not all hospitals, um, have what's called an EAP Mm-hmm. Um, and most companies have an EAP and it just, it, it's basically um, over the phone type of counseling. You might get five for free and then you work out like an arrangement for payment. Or, you know, if you decide, you know what, I think I want to work with an actual counselor face to face. Could you help me find someone? They'll help you find someone. Right. Yeah. So it's not coming from your program, unless your family medicine um, and then you have to check out what your hospitals or your employers, some people are employed by the College of Medicine. You have to find out, you know, what that scheme looks like. If it's one, two, you know, even five sessions for free, the employers will have that information. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, going back to the SWOT analysis, what are some of the threats or the barriers of success for residents? And what can incoming residents do to mitigate the chances of being on that threat list? Yeah, so, you know, a lot of it has to do with a poor attitude, um, poor workmanship, just really not mature enough to be 
in this line of work at this time. So that's why I always say like, you have to be disciplined with your communication. I know that we listen to have a rebuttal. So we explain ourselves. We're always trying to come up with an answer because usually the conversation is, why'd you do this? Why'd you do that? Like you're trying to find a way out. You're trying to find a way to explain what you did. So you have less damage being impacted by you. But that's not how it is during residency. You have to listen to fully listen and understand about what they are saying about your job performance. And that's a lot of critiquing that's going to come along the way. And sometimes residents, they're new to it. They feel like, why am I always being picked on? Or they might have some sort of emotional outlash. Or they just might not even accept it. They might simply say, no, you you watched wrong. Your perception is wrong. Like they might become a bit argumentative and that's never good. Yeah. But yeah, so you have to really be mature. Um, and like I said, you're going to go through conflicts and you've probably never gone through, you know, even half of them that you're going to be presented with because you've always been in a volunteer role in your life. Right. So now it's like, okay, how do I get through this when I've never really had this conflict? Like, what if a patient comes and complains to my attending about me? You know, you have to take that with stride and you have to be like, you know, I see your perception and I'm sorry that happened. You, you, you have to really learn from your mistakes and show that you're learning from them. If you can't do that, that's going to be a red flag for the program. So, well, you know, what's the point of having this person next year or the following year when they're not learning from their mistakes that we're, that we're trying to correct them on today? Yeah. And one thing that I would advise students and even current residents is that there will come a time that a patient fires you. You shouldn't take that personally. And when your program director or when your attendings try to give you advice, you should accept it. Don't try to fight it. Right. Exactly. I mean, you do want to know your rights. So we have um, this thing with every program because ACGME requires something that's called milestones. So every program is going to do a SWOT analysis of the resident during each of the rotations. So that's like the opportunity to really take it in strive of positive critiquing. It is the attending's job to point out, okay, yes, these were his or her strengths, but this was also the weaknesses and we need to focus on these weaknesses because we want them to obviously be improved. Right. The outcome is always patient safety. So if there's matters that need to be improved, definitely take it to heart. It might be something that you might not be aware of yourself and somebody had to point it out to you. But you do want to know your rights. And within the milestones, they should be giving you the exact scenarios of what constitutes as a, you know, as a category to which you're, you meet the expected needs or you excel the expected needs or you don't. Yeah. And that's something that's important for residents to learn because the milestones, they are evaluations. They do happen with the rotations, but that can also be used to not promote you. So if you're a PGY one and you're having, you know, one heck of a time your first year and you're getting poor evaluations, you want to make sure you read those evaluations at, you know, at the rotations, at the end of the rotations. Mm -hmm. And if you don't understand something, you should definitely ask clarity on it because that could be used again to not promote you. And it could, let's say you're having, you know, just a really difficult time with the program director or the program itself. Maybe some people, it's just not a good match. You know, it turns out maybe this is just not the right program for me. And maybe they feel that way about you as well. They can use what's in your evaluations to say, look, you know, we've gotten a lot of um, issues. They haven't met their milestones and we're just not going to promote them. Right. So definitely uh, when you start, you want to make sure you know what your milestones are. So you want to make sure you know who really is in your GME community, who really is doing all the evaluating outside of 
of eValue or MedHub, whatever system you use, and really understand what it is that you're what you're being evaluated on. And they should be able to provide a copy for you. For all of your rotations, they should be able to provide that milestone copy that goes over exactly what you'll be evaluated on and how it will meet or exceed or not meet um, their level of what they feel you should be at. Yeah. I hope that made sense. If you haven't done milestones before, it probably has not made sense. Yeah. So for the listeners to know, the milestones are the six competencies, right? So so the milestones are based off of the six competencies. So ACGME has six core competencies and the milestones is in connection with that. Right. So as a resident, you'll definitely be learning a lot about the six core competencies. Um, and then after each evaluation, you get your final evaluation so you should be reading them again, whether it's on eValue, MedHub, whatever it may be. And then it will tell you if you met it or not. And if you feel that you did meet it, then you might want to talk to that attending and say, you know, I wanted just to provide a few examples of how I thought I met this uh, milestone for this, you know, category, let's just say patient safety. And then you can at least talk to them about it and they can give you a better idea of what was missed. Or if they were said, you know what, I didn't see that. Maybe it was a different attending that saw that and they might reassess your evaluation. Absolutely. And then for those who are current residents right now, what does your book have to offer them in regards to what they should be? Yeah, I have a chapter on transitioning to practice and it will go over the whole recruitment process, what that looks like when you work with a recruiter to get your next position, you know, your contracts, what's typically negotiated is on there, uh, interviewing, what questions will be asked of you, what questions you should be asking of them, you know, what does a, a typical day look like, who are you meeting with, you know, when you go to the hospital, um, when you meet your department, uh, all that fun stuff. And what does it look like when you actually become a faculty member of departments? But then I, I do talk about other things such as, you know, understanding the resident and fellow learning environment. And I go more into depth about, you know, just the whole 80 hours per week and, and the duty hours. Uh, I personally am not in agreement with 80 hours a week. And so I use that opportunity to kind of talk about the statistics I had found about, you know, why the hours need to be rolled back. But then, you know, I get into, uh, the hierarchy of healthcare. I get into the whole concept of burnout, but I call moral injury. I don't necessarily use the word burnout. Uh, you know, healthcare is an abusive environment, and we have the statistics to show that this isn't anything new. If you've been in healthcare, um, no matter what your role is, it's going to be something that's going to be pointed out to you because you're going to see it with your own eyes. So I have um, a lot of statistics about you know, the unfortunate things such as different types of harassment. I do go into the whole Me Too movement in healthcare. Um, and then I do have, you know, the conjunction of working with program administration and how important that is. Because one thing that I can't stress enough, especially to med students right now, is you've got to really build up your collaboration skills. People come in to be a resident and think it's going to be the solo team that they're working on, just their program, but that's not how it is especially if you want to do a fellowship, like don't be surprised when you've got, you know, attendings who work in these subspecialties, that's who you really want to work with really well and impress because you might want to have a fellowship under their care one day. Right. But it's, it's not even just, you know, the specialty or subspecialties, other departments in the hospital that you will always be working with. Um, really, we've got a high turnover rate in healthcare and I hate to say it, but out of all of the careers in America, the career that has a number one suicide rate is physicians. Mm -hmm. 
So we want we want to help that. And you know, it's a bullying culture. And this again isn't a surprise to anybody that's been in healthcare. So I'm trying to tackle some of that because really what you learn as a resident, what's being modeled to you is what you will do when you become on the floor. And I had, and I talk about this story um, in chapter nine, transition to residency. I was working at uh, Georgetown University, MedStar Hospital. You know, that's an elite school. I was thinking this was going to be the best of the best. (laughs) Um, But you know what? The same problems were happening there too. And when I was working with um, one of the residency programs, the med school had conducted a survey to the med students and said, tell us about your rotation experience. Mm -hmm. Now, this is really alarming. So they asked med students, you know, give us an example of what happened, you know, write in if if anything was missed. You had med students saying why they were on rotation. They were getting slapped. Oh, wow. They were, yeah, they were being treated as personal assistants. They had to go pick up errands. They had to take the garbage out to the actual garbage dumpster, which is, you know, it's not, it's not a trash can in the office or down the hall. Right. You have to go outside the building to the dumpster, which is uncalled for. It's unnecessary. It's almost a form of hazing. Yeah. So that just kind of like really reassured me saying, you know, the creme de la creme of Georgetown, this is happening too. And it's happening everywhere. Mm-hmm. It, that's just the answer. It's happening everywhere. We have an abusive culture in healthcare. It's nothing new. Med students will first go through this. They'll see it when they do the rotation then when they become residents, this is how they get treated. They think, okay, this is how it's done. So when they go onto the floor, it's just a recycled pattern. Right. So I talk a lot about that in the book. Um, and so it doesn't necessarily matter like right now, like if, if it's not going to um, help you, it's going to educate you. So when you do become a resident, you will definitely have some proactive situations that you can find yourself in so you can get out of the hot seat. And again, just a lot of it is maturing Make sure your communication is mature. Make sure your emotions are are mature. Make sure your spiritual self is mature and really work out the, the well-being side of you, how you're going to get, whether it's daily, whether it's weekly, whether it's monthly, how you're going to care for yourself and unleash all of those heavy burdens that you've had to take day after day, patient after patient. I don't think uh, residents realize that they just pent up. They just pent up all of this stuff because we teach them about resilience. They don't even know how to release it. Right. We don't teach them those skills. So in chapter five, I have a lot of examples. This is for people who do like traditional therapy or who don't because they have um, alternative therapies as well and day-to-day practices like aromatherapy and, and stuff like that. That's awesome. Well, I'm really looking forward to reading this book. And for those of you listening, I highly suggest you guys uh, get this book as well. Read it cover to cover, learn the information, because this is stuff that I wish I knew when I was applying for residency. And I think it'll really help you become a better resident, better physician, and a better person in general. Brenda, did you have any parting words, any last minute advice you wanted to give the audience? Um, the only thing I can just say is, you know, it's it's obviously a really great career going into healthcare. And we teach you to be a doctor, but we don't teach you how to become a doctor. So hopefully this book will help with some transparency, what I feel is lacking in transparency and helping to uncover the barriers to success. And I think, like I said, one of them is how to be a doctor. So I, I'm really excited for chapter seven because it really goes into building your business, building your reputation um, and you know how to get referrals, et cetera, et cetera. But that's why I say read it in its entirety because while I'm talking about building a reputation in chapter seven, 
I also had talked about, you know, how you're building your, your reputation with everyone that you meet. So whether you're in a different rotation or you're working with a different um, group of people that you normally do, always be your professional self, your best professional self, because they have a, a means to analyze and evaluate you and give that info to, you know, stakeholders. So definitely read the book in its entirety because it's going to be useful no matter what stage you are in. For sure. Well, Brenda, I appreciate your time. I thank you for being on the show. Guys, make sure you check out this book. I'm going to drop the links in the show notes when it comes out. It's Graduate Medical Education, Rethink, Reclaim, Rebuild, Recreate. Brenda, how can listeners get in touch with you if they wanted to? So they can definitely DM me on my LinkedIn or they can email me, which is btchicago at live.com. Awesome. So we'll put that in the show notes as well. And I thank you again for being on the show. This was very helpful information. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You're welcome. If you haven't already, please rate and review the podcast. Share it with your friends and get this message out there. Because this is a time where a lot of people are skeptical and they're saying, I'm an older grad, I'm an IMG, I have trouble with the USMLEs, there's no way I can compete, what do I do? Well, we want to show you that there is hope. Actually, right now is the best time to match as an IMG. You know, our match rates have gone up from 48% in 2010 when I graduated medical school to 61% in the 2020 match. That's a significant jump. And as a matter of fact, more than 25% of the U.S. healthcare system is made up of international grads. So know that you can do it. You will do it. Just don't give up. And I hope to see you in the next episode.